Hi everyone, it's Sam here, stepping out from behind the desk for a very special mini-series of the Pint of Science podcast, in collaboration with Aston University. In the next four episodes, we'll be meeting with a few of the leading lights of research at the university. Some you may know if you've been to a Pint of Science talk, and some you may not. We'll be talking about their research, what makes them tick, and how they're changing the world for the better and pushing the boundaries of the understanding of humankind. You know, the day-to-day stuff. If you're listening to this and you're maybe inspired to learn more about these scientists' fields or STEM courses in general, head to aston.ac.uk for more information. Without further ado, today we're meeting a man who's leading the fight against bad bugs and some of the most destructive diseases we're fighting today. Dr Jonathan Cox is leader of the Mycobacterial Research Group at Aston University and specialises in antibiotic-resistant diseases such as tuberculosis or TB. He's dedicated his career to finding ways to defeat these hardy bugs. He's also a Pint of Science Festival grandee to boot. So pull up a drink of your choice and get ready for a Pint of Science with Dr Jonathan Cox. I'm Dr. Jonathan Cox, lecturer in microbiology and director of the Mycobacterial Research Group at Aston University. You say mycobacterium. What Mm. is mycobacterium? Okay, mycobacteria are a group of very pathogenic microorganisms that uh, cause really nasty infectious diseases in people. One of the most common ones that people will have heard of is tuberculosis. So tuberculosis is a disease caused by the organism Mycobacterium tuberculosis. And it's really one of the sort of most widespread pathogens on on the planet. Um, And although, you know, we've sort of, at the moment, coronavirus is is big in in the media and the world's locked down because of coronavirus, but actually more people die every year of tuberculosis than than have done this year of coronavirus by quite some sizable margin. 1.4 million deaths a year are attributed to TB. And so I work on mycobacterium tuberculosis as well as as a number of other mycobacterial species. I'm particularly interested in another one, which is called mycobacterium abscessus. Mycobacterium abscessus is environmental in origin, okay? So you'll find it in water sources, in in resting water, in um, soil and lakes and things like that. That's where you find mycobacterium abscessus. Um, and what it what abscessus is able to do is is able to colonize um, damaged lungs so it's a particular problem in people that have things like cystic fibrosis where their their lungs have um, have a lot of damage a lot of inflammation and and they also in cf have this um, very sticky sort of thick mucus that the bacteria are able to colonize and persist in And the difficulty with mycobacterium abscessus, because it's a mycobacterium and because it's environmental in origin, those two factors make it incredibly difficult to treat with antibiotics. Um, Mycobacteria don't respond to most of the normal antibiotics that we would use, you know, for, for, for normal basic infections okay so you you know penicillin beta-lactam antibiotics they just don't work against mycobacteria because they've got these these inbuilt resistance mechanisms that are able to overcome these sort of antibiotics so in terms of penicillins okay they're they're called the beta-lactam class of antibiotic 
and mycobacteria have an, an what's called an endogenous enzyme. So that means it's it's inbuilt in their DNA. This enzyme that will break down beta-lactam antibiotics. It's called a beta-lactamase. Ase means it breaks stuff down. Okay, so it's a beta-lactamase. So that means if you try and you try and treat a, a mycobacterial infection with with beta-lactam antibiotics like penicillin, the bacteria basically just break down the antibiotic and it doesn't touch the sides. It doesn't impact the, the bacteria whatsoever. Is this something new? Is this a resistance that they built up over time? Penicillin, for example, used to work or have they always been completely resistant to it? Well, penicillin, as you, you may well know, is produced by a fungus called penicillium fungus. Okay, Penicillium is a, is a mold that secretes penicillin fungus, and that was discovered by Fleming in 1928. And so since then, we've been able to harness it and use it as an antibiotic. But the point is, penicillin's been around long before we started using it as an antibiotic. It was a means of this fungus being able to protect itself against uh, predators in the environment and to be able to gain access to nutrients. So penicillin has been around a long time. And so it's most probable that um, mycobacterium uh, uh, that, that are environmental in origin co-evolved with these, these penicillium uh, penicillin ah. molds, penicillin producing fungi, and as a result, they evolved the mechanism to be able to withstand that that antibiotic stress. So you would be right in saying that that um, beta lactamases, these enzymes that break down penicillin antibiotics, they are they're part of ev the evolutionary survival of bacteria. And although we have contributed. To the situation by using antibiotics quite prevalently, the resistance mechanism is something more ancestral. Just in a very, very potted one minute outline for the, for the layman, how does an antibiotic actually work? Okay, so in, in very general terms, an antibiotic needs to do several things. First thing is it needs to not kill the human. Okay, so it needs to be a selective poison. Very important. Yep. <laughs> Very important. It needs to be a selective poison. So it needs to be toxic to the bacteria, but not toxic to us. That's the first, the first thing you need for, a, for an antibiotic. The second thing is it needs to be able to get to the bacteria wherever they're causing your infection. Okay, so it needs to be able to be absorbed by the body or distributed by the body to where it actually needs to, to do its thing. It also needs to be able to get into the bacteria in the first place, okay? Because the bacteria have a very sort of uh, a very large and very um, hydrophobic, that means a very waxy sort of outer layer that can prevent antibiotics or could prevent compounds, drugs from getting in in the first place. So it's really important that, the, that an antibiotic actually gets into the bacteria. And then when it's inside the bacteria, it needs to hit a piece of machinery that the bacteria really need to survive. And the way I sort of think of it, a sort of analogy, is that the antibiotic is like a spanner that you're throwing into a, into a machine full of cogs and you're, the spanner locks up all the cogs and stops the machine working. And if it's an important enough machine, then the bacteria will die. And, and that's, in a nutshell, how an antibiotic works. 
uh, there are some exceptions to that. There are other antibiotics that work in just punching big holes in the in the wall on the outside of bacteria. Bacteria are actually under the same kind of pressure as a domestic car tire. Oh wow! If you've ever seen a car tire <laughs> That's amazing. explode, you know what happens when you punch a hole in it. Well, the same thing <laughs> yeah. happens to bacteria. They will they burst under their own osmotic pressure. This is called lysis, and they will just pop, literally pop, um, and that. It, and penicillin actually is very good at inhibiting a mesh-like structure, which is called peptidoglycan. This mesh is, I, I use the analogy of a chain link fence because it's, it's very strong, but it's also flexible. And it's what gives bacteria, the outside of bacteria, their strength effectively. And peptidoglycan is made up of building blocks called NAG and NAM. Okay. I won't confuse you any further by telling you what that stands for but it's made up of these building blocks and the building blocks are in put into this chain link fence structure by an enzyme the enzyme is the machine that puts the building blocks together to build the fence does that make sense yes so what penicillin does is it will block this enzyme it, it will kill this machine that puts the links together in the fence so as a result big holes open up in the fence and as a result, the bacteria explode under their own osmotic pressure. So that's how ah. penicillins work in a, in a nutshell. Fascinating and su- uh, suitably uh, suitably accessible for a complete layman like me to understand as well. <laughs> People do talk about an antibiotic apocalypse. Is that is that hyperbole, or are we facing a really serious situation now? And just how? useless are our current rounds of antibiotics in their various guises it's not going to be apocalyptic but it's certainly going to change the face of the face of the world for forever if we don't do something to tackle it antibiotic apocalypse it's just it's just not accurate because it's not going to be something that's going to kill everybody it's not going to be the end of the world but what it is going to do is it's going to impact everybody's life it's going to mean that basic infections that have been previously treatable will become, you know, potentially life-threatening. And it'll take us back to the sort of pre-antibiotic era. So back in the the 1920s, before penicillin was identified, we were pretty restricted on what we could do for people that had, you know, bacterial pneumonia, etc. There was there was no route to take. Pneumococcal pneumonia was fatal in 82% of cases before antibiotic uh, discovery happened. And then once we had penicillin, that that reduced to about. 20% of cases you can so you can see that was a massive jump in survivability of yeah, of, of, a, of a bacterial infection so yeah if we lost access to any antibiotics because the bacteria became resistant to all of them it would knock us back but i don't like the expression apocalypse because i don't think it's very scientific but it, no. it's it's a nice headline for a paper it is it's a very it's a very media headline isn't yeah. it anything that gets people talking about it is is a good thing but you know, as a scientist, I want to spread truth, not rumor. And so, yes, <laughs> you know, it, the the truth of it is, it will make basic things an awful lot more life threatening. The there was a report um, a couple of years ago that was done by an economist called Jim O'Neill, and what he did was he he forecast. You, he's an economist, so he looked at the data and forecast where we're going to be with antibiotic resistance by the year twenty fifty if we carry on the way we are. 
And what he identified was that the total number of deaths was going to increase to 10 million people per year. And that antibiotic resistance would overtake cancer as the leading cause of death worldwide. So currently, about 700,000 people a year die of antibiotic resistant infections around the world. But if we do nothing about it by 2050, that will be 10 million people. And, you know, one in three people gets cancer, right? We all know somebody who's, who's had cancer. And if you think that this that antibiotic resistance, if we leave it unchecked, is going to be worse than that situation that we're in now. I mean, mm. that, that is, it's truly terrifying. And so we, we've really got to find new ways, new strategies, intelligent um, ways to be able to overcome the, the bacterial machinery. It's a constant arms race. The bacteria are constantly evolving and developing new weaponry, new machinery that they can use to overcome the antibiotics we're using to treat them. And so we need to be constantly pushing ahead to make sure that our weaponry is as advanced as it can possibly be. What is what is the future 5, 10, 15 years down the line for antibiotics and, and the fight against harmful bacteria? It's a really great question. People have been exploring all kinds of different non-drug-based approaches to tackling um, antibiotic resistance. And one of the really neat ways is by using bacteriophages. I was going to ask about these, yeah. So bacteriophages are viruses that only infect bacteria, okay? So they only have the machinery to be able to attack bacterial cells, and they don't attack our cells, so they're not they're not human viruses; they're bacterial viruses, and they're known as bacteriophages. And what they will do is they will if you, if you take a bacteriophage, it has to be specific for the infection that you want to treat. Okay, you have to engineer the correct bacteriophage to the correct bacteria, and so you you take that bacteriophage, and what it'll do is it will propagate within the body so it will get into it'll infect bacterial cells this virus will infect a bacterial cell and then it will replicate itself inside of the bacterial cell and then burst out multiple viral particles will burst out of the bacteria killing the bacteria and they will then go and try and find other bacteria for um, to infect and to replicate within etc and this the theory behind it is that this is naturally self-limiting because once your bacterial infection is is treated successfully, all the bacteria are gone, then the bacteriophage has nowhere, no way to divide and replicate. And so that's the end of the bacteriophage's life cycle. It's a fascinating thing to look at, isn't it? Because I've seen videos of bacteriophages before. I think it's one that attacks possibly E. coli, maybe? Yeah, it's quite possible. They're like absolutely micro micro microscopic mosquitoes really aren't they they basically bite is the wrong word but they essentially bite the bacteria more or less infect yeah, it and they, take it over that's it they bite it they inject their dna into it and then the bacterial machinery will then trans translate that dna into the proteins that actually make up the virus in the first place so the, 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 the virus totally hijacks the bacterial cell to use its machinery to be able to increase the number of viral particles within that environment. Well, I was going to ask whether it's 
possible and whether people are experimenting with genetically engineering new phages to treat individual bacterial infections or whether that's kind of beyond the realms of research at the moment? Not at all, not at all. Um, it, it's totally within the realms of research. There was a case recently in, in London at Great Ormond Street Hospital and actually they used a bacteriophage in an attempt to treat a mycobacterium abscessus infection in a young girl who had had years and years of aggressive antibiotic chemotherapy and the antibiotics weren't killing her infection. So her parents did a bit of research and they found this place in the US that was engineering bacteriophages. And so cut a long story short, their daughter received this bacteriophage and it saved her life, massively reduced her infection. However, it didn't cure her infection. I fervently believe and this is why my, my research really focuses on this. I fervently believe that the future is combination treatment of bacterial infections. I think if we just continue to pursue monotherapy, that is just giving one antibiotic for one bacterial infection, I think we will potentiate, will increase the risk of uh, antibiotic resistance and we will continue to facilitate the spread of antibiotic resistance. And so I think research in the future and moving forward needs to look at combinations of antibiotics that have complementary mechanisms of action that work in complementary ways so that we can reduce antibiotic resistance and over, continue to overwhelm uh, bacteria that are causing infectious diseases and ultimately to stay one step ahead in the arms race against antibiotic resistance and, and nasty bacteria that make us ill. Something that my, my team have recently discovered is a way in which we can make mycobacterium abscessus susceptible to penicillin once again. Ah. We've found a, a really, really potent drug which is called a, a beta-lactamase inhibitor. So it blocks this enzyme that, would, that the bacteria would use to normally turn over beta-lactams. And although that step on its own doesn't kill the bacteria, it makes them sensitive to normal antibiotics like amoxicillin, for example. So with this beta-lactamase inhibitor and amoxicillin, we can kill mycobacterium abscessus. So we're trying, my research is trying to sort of move this forward into a clinically implementable strategy for people that have um, abscessus infections. It's currently treated with really, really aggressive, highly toxic, very nasty antibiotics for a very long time. If you go to your GP, you'll probably get, with a, with a bacterial infection, you'll likely get a, a week or 10 days of, of antibiotics for mycobacterium abscessus, you need 18 months of antibiotic intervention. Oh, and wow. it's not just one antibiotic you're taking. You will be on a cocktail of different antibiotics, and all of them are quite toxic. So they'll make you feel pretty dreadful for that, that period that you're being treated. So you can see where there's real value in being able to use penicillins for treating mycobacterial infections. You can see that, that, that penicillins that are very safe drugs, very well tolerated by patients, if we could find a way to make mycobacteria susceptible to them, that is a, that's a major step forward in the way in which we can treat 
those sort of infectious diseases. And so that that has been the focus of my research for the last few years. And, and we published a paper recently on, on this new beta-lactamase inhibitor that is able to do just that. And we've tested it against 22 patients' clinical isolates so far, and we've been able to kill all of the clinical isolates. It's a real step forward, and we, we are working hard to, to get this into clinical implementation as soon as we can in the next few years. And when do you think that might be? Congratulations on the way on, on having your, your paper published on it. Thank you. When do you think that uh, there might be full human trials? Well, we've got a little bit more work to do. So um, the, the next thing we want to do is find out what the best partner drug is for our beta-lactamase inhibitor. So we want to look at the full scope of different beta-lactams that are available, and there are new ones being manufactured all the time. Um, And so we want to look to see what the best combination is that we could possibly identify. And then when we've done that, we can look at, on a case-by-case basis, testing patients' clinical isolates, making sure that this looks like it's going to work, and then trialing it on a, on a, on a small scale. But I have to say that is it's quite, a far, quite a way in the future yet. Um, you know, it takes, a, takes time, and we have to make sure that we've got every I dotted and every T crossed to, to ensure that these, these drugs are not only effective, but also the treatment is safe and is going to be well tolerated by, by patients. Oh, it's exciting times. And obviously, this is something that you're taking very seriously in your research. Is it something that the health community, governments are taking as seriously as possibly they should do? Yes, I think antibiotic resistance is beginning to to build traction in terms of funding. And for a long time, I don't think it got the attention that it required. But there's still more work to be done. And, and things like, you know, global viral pandemics only really serve to 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 push funding in uh, away from antibiotic resistance. So, you know, the um, AMR field takes it takes a bit of a hit because re- all research funding and efforts are pushed towards trying to tackle that immediate threat, which is understandable and logical. But it, it has a knock-on effect for an awful lot of different scientific areas. It's really important that we continue to fund this. And the only way we're going to be able to progress the only way i can do the science that i do is by being supported financially we have just set up in fact a a crowdfunding page to enable the the cf community to empower the the patients that actually have these sort of infections to be able to be part of the fight against it really you know i get i had a lot of emails from patients going what can we do you can support it by by making a donation and and any donations would be gratefully received and go directly to the antibiotic arms race. Fantastic. And I will put a link to that in the description for the podcast as well. So hopefully, depending on your podcast app of choice, you'll have a, a clickable link you can uh, go straight through to on that. As a, as a researcher, how did you end up going down this route? How did you get into bacteria and antibiotics? When I was an undergraduate student, I I went to university and studied uh, medical biochemistry. And through that degree, I really started to discover a a fascination with the way antibiotics worked. I found it really interesting to, I've always liked chemistry, but to really understand the way in which an antibiotic drug that you took got to a bacterial infection and then got into the bacteria 
and how it actually brought about the bacterial cell death. And so from that fascination, I then began to really learn a lot more about antibiotic resistance and antibiotic resistance mechanisms and how the bacteria were fighting, fighting back against that. And I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying, but my my father was was quite unwell towards the end of my undergraduate degree with a uh, an antibiotic resistant bacterial infection, and so you know personal circumstance helped to drive in some way my 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 fascination of the subject really, and and inspired me to want to do something about it as well. And so when I finished my undergraduate degree, I went and, and did a PhD. And my research there was to focus on the discovery of new antibiotics and how those new antibiotics work. Are there any common infections that were previously very treatable and starting to become more resistant now? Is there anything that we, you know, the average person will have heard of that is in, in the danger zone, so to speak? I, I guess you probably haven't heard of, of Staphylococcus aureus. I, I've heard of Staphylococcus before, but okay. I think there's, very, there's various versions of it, isn't there? Yeah, so Staphylococcus aureus is the basic organism, and it's a, it's a commensal. We, we find it in our body. In, in most people, it, it, you find it up your nose. And it lives quite happily in us, and, and it doesn't impact us in any way particularly, but it's what's called an opportunistic pathogen. So if it gets that opportunity to be able to cause an infection, if the circumstances are right, then Staphylococcus aureus can infect us. So often sort of post-surgery, you can get um, Staphylococcus aureus infections at the surgical site, or if you have what's called a central venous catheter, or any kind of catheterization really, where you have a plastic tube introduced into the body for administering fluid or administering drugs or whatever, at the point at which you get that contact between the plastic and the skin, you can get a buildup of bacteria on that, which is called a biofilm, and it sits on the plastic. And it, you can get Staphylococcus aureus biofilms on that plastic. Previously, you know, sort of a few few decades ago, that was not such an issue. But you may have heard of something called MRSA. Now, MRSA is uh, is sort of bound, bound around in the in the press as a as a superbug, and what that MRSA stands for is methicillin resistant Staphylococcus aureus. So this is a Staph aureus, a normal Staph aureus that we find in our body that has developed, has evolved, has gained the ability to be able to withstand exposure to methicillin. Now, methicillin is an antibiotic of last resort. This organism has evolved the ability to be able to survive some serious antibiotic pressure. And so that, that has been a major problem in the healthcare setting. And MRSA is something that we've had to really work hard to be able to find a means of being able to manage it. And we still get outbreaks in hospitals every so often of MRSA. But we discovered a few years subsequent to MRSA's identification, a drug called vancomycin, another antibiotic of last resort that actually will kill MRSA. So this was a, this was a real leap forward. We had some treatment for MRSA. Now, I, I've mentioned before the arms race. Well, once we started using vancomycin in, in hospitals to treat patients with MRSA, it wasn't long until we started to identify vancomycin-resistant isolates of Staph aureus. So that 
we call VRSA. So you just see that there's just this continuous battle. And so it's really important that we keep one step ahead of the game. We hear about TB a lot, and obviously there are there are vaccinations against TB. Well, there's a vaccine which How is does that celebrating work rather hundred, than <laughs> the, 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 the TB vaccine is the BCG vaccine, yes, um, yeah. which was which was discovered by Calmet and, and Guerin. It was uh, it was that's the the C and the G bit. It's Basile Calmet Guerin BCG, ah. um, and and so they they discovered it and they they made it by serially passaging. That means growing up and then reculturing and then growing up and then reculturing the bacteria over and over and over again until they lost their ability to be able to cause an infection. And so they elicit the same immune response when you inject them into people, but they don't infect people. And so that's what BCG is basically. It's a it's a live attenuated vaccine. It means it's live bacteria, but they've been attenuated by the serial passage process. But we are Um, This year, in fact, I think it is, we're celebrating the 100th birthday of the BCG vaccine. And we haven't moved it on at all. This is the same vaccine that we've been using for 100 years. And I think it's really... Um, important that we we keep on top of discovery of new vaccines and that we roll with the times because bacteria are constantly evolving. And so we need to be constantly evolving the way in which we prevent infections by them. And the, the BCG vaccine is now, as, as you will know, not routinely given uh, as it was when I was a child. I was vaccinated when I was at school and as part of a, you know, a, a yes, likewise. vaccination strategy. And, and they're not doing that anymore. And the reason why they're not doing it anymore, they'll still vaccinate high risk children, but, but um, not low risk children. And the reason why they don't do it anymore is because it's not very effective at protecting against pulmonary tuberculosis anymore. It's not as effective as it used to be, and that's because TB has changed over time. So we desperately need new treatments in order to be able to to treat the patients that are getting ill now with these really deadly infections, but we also need new vaccines to be able to stop the future generations from, from getting ill and to be able to preempt the evolution that will be inevitable of these bacterial organisms. So about one third of the world is infected with TB. One in three really? people. Okay. That's a huge number of people. But the reason why, you know, you don't hear about your next door neighbor and, and the other person down the road has come down with TB is because most people are infected with a latent form of the bacteria. So that means that the infection is is quiescent it's dormant it's hiding inside your body and in that latent form the bacteria are incredibly antibiotic tolerant because they they're not actively dividing they're still very much alive but they're not metabolically active which means a lot of the machinery that our antibiotics hit is no longer essential within that kind of within that kind of physiology within that situation within that quiescent state. So what we are doing is discovering, and we we have a new candidate actually of a drug that is able to kill latent Mycobacterium tuberculosis within that state. So if we ever want to stand a chance of being able to eradicate TB, 
we need to be able to treat it in all its different forms, not just in its active infective form, but also in its latent form. And so that's why, for, for me, that is a really important clinical challenge, to be able to find a way to kill latent tuberculosis as well as active tuberculosis. And so we've, we've had to develop new, very complex, very technical assays, means of being able to produce these bacteria in the first place, to be able to screen big sets of different drugs, to be able to find the ones that are active against latent TB. And we've had some success on that. And we, that paper, we hope, will be coming out later on this year. Fantastic. And, and, and in a nutshell, how do you kill a, a sleeping bacteria, if you like? You have to find something inside the bug that it still needs. Ah, it's sleeping, okay. but it's not dead. It's still alive. When you're sleeping, you don't need to eat, but you still need to breathe. Mm. So you can always find something within them. And it's about understanding the physiology of the microbe, understanding the, the, the way in which the bug works and how it functions under all different states, you know, to be able to develop and discover antibiotics of the future. In an essence, it's like disconnecting the battery on a car, essentially kill it. Or is that completely misunderstanding it? <laughs> well, that, that's reversible. And what we like to do is we like to make sure that it's not reversible. <laughs> Fair enough. Disconnect the battery, then burn the car. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly it. Yeah, that's 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 a good analogy. But um, I think what's really important and to to have a, an antibiotic that's around for a long time is to make sure that what we have works incredibly well. That it doesn't just tickle the bacteria into submission. That we absolutely annihilate it. And so that's what we're that's what we're looking for. Fantastic. I'm the bacterial terminator. That sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> it literally just came into my head, and it, I'm, I'm not sure I like it yet. <laughs> we'll see how it sounds in the final cut. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> I can't. I never said that before in my life. I don't know why that just. Came. Right at the beginning, we talked about how various infections are possibly environmental, and they're just in in the world around us. Yes. How common is it for for us to be carrying potentially fatal or incredibly dangerous bacteria? And is it something that we should worry about as a general public? Okay, so if you think about your hand, right, if you placed a one penny coin in the centre of your palm, underneath that coin, you would have approximately 10 million bacterial cells underneath that coin. So there would wow. be 10 million bacteria under that coin. And if you shake hands with somebody, you can transfer somewhere between 100 and 124 million bacteria in a single handshake. Wow. I mean, that's considerable. And our, our hands yes. are, if people who have sweaty, sweaty hands transfer an awful lot more bacteria than people that have dry hands. That's just an average. But bacteria are everywhere. One of the most sort of common bacteria that's all over our skin is, is called Staphylococcus epidermidis. And this is an opportunistic pathogen. So in people that are immunocompromised or at surgical sites, as I previously mentioned, you know, the, the, this organism can cause life-threatening infections. It can cause bacteremia, a, a disseminated bacterial infection of the bloodstream that's, that's really, really dangerous and really difficult, really challenging clinically to treat. So, yeah, I mean, bacteria are everywhere and we have to be careful. 
it's that's why it's so fundamentally important for us to wash our hands you know before we eat and after we've been to the bathroom and you know whenever we take public transport i think you know more than ever i've always to be honest washed my hands after i've got off the train before i've gone and eaten a sandwich because yes you, you, yeah. you just but but i don't think everybody does and actually that really does need to become part of our routine practice because the fact of the matter is prevention is better than cure so if you don't get sick in the first place because you've sloughed off the bacteria from your hands by washing with soap and water it doesn't have to be hot water it's just got to be soapy water then you're unlikely to get sick in the first place which means you're unlikely to need antibiotics to be able to treat it but of course you know things go wrong and and most of us have had a course of antibiotics in our lifetime I, because bacteria are constantly sort of invading our body and we have this constant balance between bacteria in our body that given the right set of circumstances can cause us infections. So take for example E. coli. E. coli in our gut does something really useful for us. It helps us to maintain the appropriate sort of bacteria within our gut. So it prevents the colonization of nasty bacteria that you know, we may ingest and so reduces the chances of us getting sort of really acutely ill. But if that E. coli gets into the wrong place, say it gets into, you know, your urinary tract, for example, it can cause a really, really nasty urinary tract infection. I was going to say, I don't think anyone would ever have thought that E. coli would be a a bacteria that protects you, <laughs> protects your digestive system. It's about represents about 0.1% of our gut flora actually. So it's it's not a oh, huge wow. amount but it, it's it's still, you know, evident there and it helps us to actually break down lactose. So we have quite a, a quite a lot of of milk in our diet, quite a lot of dairy and it's one of the bugs that helps us to actually digest lactose so it is very useful and it also produce, believe it or not produces a vitamin k2 which helps us in terms of in terms of our blood clotting so it's yes it's it's useful and our gut flora our microbiome if you will it's a balance between you know the good the bad and bacteria that can be present within us and so if we take away some of the good bacteria that we have in our gut, then we open up an opportunity for pathogens to then to, to make us poorly, to make us ill. But a good, a good healthy gut has been shown to not only, you know, sort of reduce your chances of, of getting infections, but it improves your overall immune system. And it's even been shown recently to improve your mental health. If you have good gut flora, a healthy gastrointestinal system, you, generally speaking, will have a better mental health. So it's, oh, um, wow. yeah, so that bacteria actually play a really big, really big role in, uh, in us and in our body. I'll tell you another statistic. So in the average human adult body, there are 100 trillion human cells and 1,500 trillion microbes. That's incredible, isn't it? So at, the, at best, you are only 10% you. You're 90% <laughs> microbes. Uh, it's a it's a really really interesting thing to sort of think about. It is, and actually, on a you're talking about uh, vitamin K there and shaking hands and bacterial transfer. Purely selfishly, I'm, I'm going to become a, a dad for the first time in a couple of weeks. Congratulations! And, uh, thank you. And one of the things that uh, they do, obviously, with newborns, is they give them a vitamin K injection. Yes, but they also 
obviously you do skin to skin and part mm. of the reason for that part of the reason why they put the baby on you is so that it gets some of your your bacteria it comes exactly. out of a of a fairly bacterially neutral home and <laughs> and is introduced to some safe bacteria in the form of of your skin that's that's absolutely right one of the main benefits of that initial skin to skin contact with a newborn baby is that you'll pass on some of the good bacteria that you have on your skin and these will colonize the the baby's skin and ensure that you don't get a buildup of of potential pathogens. So babies can have some risk to yeast infections, for example, okay? So they, mm. if they have a high level of yeast on their skin and they don't have a bacterial flora, it can mean that the children can end up with, with yeast or fungal infections. One of the benefits of that initial skin-to-skin contact is that you're, you're sort of you're deliberately colonizing the child with your with your own bacteria, but your good bacteria. And assuming you don't have any nasty skin conditions, then you're unlikely to be doing the baby any harm, and you'll certainly be doing the baby some good because you'll be providing a microbiome of for that infant. It's it's a father's first gift to their child. I was just going to say it's quite it's quite a, a nice thought, really, isn't it? That you're kind of there their first protector in a way as they come into the world yes, exactly lovely that's wonderful thank you for that jonathan that's absolutely perfect really lovely well that was incredible and what a lovely thought to end on there he may be the nemesis of antibiotic resistant diseases worldwide but he knows a good bacteria when he sees one Thank you so much, Jonathan, and thank you, Aston University, for making it possible. We're collaborating with them on this mini-series, so if you're inspired to learn more about antimicrobial research, studying a course in this field, or STEM in general, head to aston.ac.uk for more. <laughs>